This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk with Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of more than 20 books. Of course, they include the classic Men Explain Things to Me. And right now we need her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is about New Orleans after Katrina and how people help each other in a disaster. Also her book, Hope in the Dark, it changed the lives of a lot of people, including me, and we need some of that hope right now. She writes for The New Yorker, she's a regular contributor to The Guardian, and now she has a new book out. It's called Recollections of My Non-Existence. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Morning, John. This is a book about how you became a writer and a feminist in 1980s San Francisco. There's an unforgettable passage about the non-existence that's in your title. I wonder if you could read it for us. We often say silenced, which presumes someone attempted to speak. In my case, it wasn't a silencing because no speech was stopped. It never started, or it had been stopped so far back, I don't remember how it happened. It never occurred to me to speak to the men who pressured me then, because it didn't occur to me that I had the authority to assert myself thus, or that they had any obligation or inclination to respect my assertions, or that my words would do anything but make everything worse. I became expert at fading and slipping and sneaking away, backing off, squirming out of tight situations, dodging unwanted hugs and kisses and hands, at taking up less and less space on the bus as yet another man spread into my seat, at gradually disengaging or suddenly absenting, absenting myself. At the art of non-existence, since existence was so perilous, it was a strategy hard to unlearn on those occasions when I wanted to approach someone directly. How do you walk right up to someone with an open heart and open arms, amid decades of survival by evasion. All this menace made it difficult to stop and trust long enough to connect, but it made it difficult to keep moving, too, and it sometimes seemed as though it was all meant to wall me up at home like a person prematurely in her coffin. You write about a lot of scary things and creepy things that men did to you when you were young and some horrifying things that men have done to other women. But there's also a lot here that's exhilarating and beautiful. The very next paragraph, for example. Walking was my freedom, my joy, my affordable transportation, my method of learning to understand places, my way of being in the world, my way of thinking through my life and my writing, my way of orienting myself. That it might be too unsafe to do was something I wasn't willing to accept though everyone else seemed more than willing to accept it on my behalf. Be a prisoner, they urged cheerfully. Accept your immobility. Wall yourself up like an anchorite. I was driven to go somewhere. There was partly a metaphysical urge to make a life, to become and transform, to do. But literal travel expressed that passion and let off that pressure. I was never going to give up walking. It was a means of thinking, of discovering, of being myself, and to give it up would have meant giving up all those things. Let's talk about this movement in in your book between the the horrible things and and the exhilarating things. It's all pretty intense for the reader. Yep. 
You know, I wasn't here to protect people. It might not be a book for everyone. But I really wanted to talk about a different kind of impact than we usually talk about. We have a kind of binary logic around violence against women. Either an extremely bad thing happened to you, which will treat as exceptional, though domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence are so common they've impacted so many of us directly. But we also say either it happened to you or it didn't happen to you. And hey, if it didn't happen to you, you got off scot-free. But as my friend Heather Smith said, and I quote her in the book, young women are encouraged to constantly imagine their own murder. We've started to have a conversation about the fact that black parents have to give their sons what's been nicknamed the talk about the police and other authorities white supremacy that's going to criminalize them and want to kill them. We don't talk about the fact, and we should, that something similar happens to little girls of every race. Warnings about how you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't wear that, you can't be out at this hour, you can't take that job, you can't go camping and hiking alone, you can't go to the party, you can't have the cocktail, that your whole whole life is about limiting your possibilities to reduce your vulnerability. In the context that I grew up in, a context of people unwilling to do absolutely anything about violence against women, even to recognize it, this was such a nightmare for me, an undeclared war in which we were the victims, the targets were supposed to figure out how to survive, and nobody wanted to change the circumstances or talk about ending the war. Of course, feminists were talking about it then, sometimes in very brilliant and powerful ways. But, you know, this book begins when I was 19, and I was many years away from being directly in touch with the writing and the voices and the people who were actually diagnosing this as an epidemic of violence that impacted us all. So it was really this terrible solitude, too, of being so threatened, so in fear that this was going to happen to me, and so unable to find anyone, even with anything useful, to say, like, this is not how your life should be lived, this is not who we should be as a society, instead of, like, oh, you should cut your hair off, you should dress like a man, you should buy a gun, you should take the taxi and buy the car and move to the neighborhood you can't afford. You know, people had all these solutions that were just alter your life to accept that men want to grievously harm you, maybe unto death, and we don't really want to hear about it. And then a second part of this book is about reading and learning to write about these things. And there's a passage I love I'd like you to read on page 108. Sometimes when you are devastated, you want not a reprieve, but a mirror of your condition or a reminder that you are not alone in it. Other times it is not the propaganda or the political art that helps you face a crisis, but whatever gives you respite from it. Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting was published in The New Yorker in installments the second half of 1980 and passed along in a stack of magazines, probably from one of my mother's friends. The chapters were like Jorge Luis Borges' Labyrinths a few years earlier, revelatory, They gave me a sense of how you could mix things, how the personal and the political could spell each other, how a narrative could be oblique, how prose like poetry could jump from subject to subject or take flight, of how the categories were optional, though it would take me another decade to find my way through their walls. How the categories were optional. That's big. 
And that's what you do in, in, in this book. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, this is really two stories braided together. And somebody called it an impersonal memoir, which I love because it is a very sp- story about a very peculiar and specific life I've had, how I became a writer, how I gained a voice, but also a very generic story because my life as a writer and even the profession, profession of writing is made perhaps unusual or individual, but my life as a woman, I think, has been very generic. I've been impacted since before birth by violence against women. You know, it will never not be something I have to contend with one way or another. I'm watching the girls around me grow into young women and have to deal with it, with uh, watching it with horror. And I wanted to write about the very ordinary experience of how it affects you in ways I hadn't seen it described and to really put out there that we need to talk maybe in a more complex way about the more subtle ways it impacts you and impacts all of us. And so much of what happens to women is because of voicelessness, because you can't speak up and say no in a way that will actually have power, because people won't believe you when you said it happened, because so much is orchestrated to discredit you and keep you out of the conversation, out of the room, out of the positions of power that are so much about the power of voices when voices have power. And because also we live in a world where some voices have too much power. Harvey Weinstein was able to use his voice and his money to silence dozens of women, some of the most high-profile women in the world, to use non-disclosure agreements, lawyers, Mossad spies, threats and intimidation, shame and harassment, and you know, within a society that made non-disclosure agreements, blaming and routine disbelief that women were capable of bearing witness or credible witnesses to our own lives. So we have people who had not enough voice, who are so often women, people who had too much voice, who are men, particularly white men in positions of power. And that anti-democracy of voices has really been a central subject for me. And I wanted to describe what it meant to me in a really intimate, personal way growing up and how it became something I took on as a writer. And what formed you as a writer and a feminist, of course, was not only reading and thinking, but but doing things. And I have to say I love your acknowledgments. These, I think, are my favorite acknowledgments I can remember reading. Can we talk about your acknowledgments? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. They're often such a shopping list, and I wanted to make it a kind of, you know, prose poem of gratitude because this is a book about a bunch of men, mostly strangers, threatening me, a friend who was almost murdered, my father's violence and mentioned in the background, so many other terrible things. But the book begins with an extraordinary man, a black building manager, World War II vet, son of sharecroppers, who'd come up in the Great Migration, who made, who gave me the refuge in which I became a writer, a little apartment in the building he was a manager of. So yeah, so he's at the beginning of these acknowledgements, Mr. James V. Young. And, and I'd and, always wanted to acknowledge him, so he's got a big place in this book. And can I ask about, how about if you, you want to read some of this? Okay. So nobody's ever asked me to read from my acknowledgements before. This is so great. 
Here we go. And this is page three because there's a lot to be grateful for, even in a book that's partly about misogyny and violence and difficulty and silencing. Thank you to both my 1991 Gulf War and 2002-2003 Iraq War, Bay Area Direct Action Secret Society, acronym BADASS, anti-war affinity groups. Thank you to the handsome bikers at the Denny's on the I-5 north of Los Angeles who listened and let me convince them that Anita Hill was telling the truth one morning at a shared table in October 1991. It was a great landmark moment for me in its own way, and they were really handsome, too. (laughs) Thank you, Cleve Jones, for that moment in 2018 when, because I showed up with a magnificent Defend Democracy banner artist Stephanie Sajuko had made, you put me at the head of a march of gay men down our central boulevard, perhaps my greatest moment of arrival as a San Franciscan. A lot of people are surprised that the gay movement was so important to you in your development as a feminist. How did that happen? You know, I am a straight girl, tragically, but <laughs> <laughs> but I am so proud and so grateful I grew up in what was, at least when I was growing up, the queerest city in America, and... Um, Gay men in particular, but all people refusing their gender assignments, dykes and lesbians and trans and drag queens and so many kinds of people were just there saying, we refused our assignment, we refused the binary logic and the lockdown that is heterosexual roles, and you know, we're liberated by example so often. And I feel that I've learned also from black rights movements, from the Native American land rights movement that was such a formative part of my coming up, the Western Shoshone Defense Project. You learn by how people see things differently, by how they question assumptions, by how they refuse the inevitability of the status quo. And gay culture was just so encouraging. And so many individual gay men who are my friends, and you all know who you were, were so generous, so warm. They really liked women in ways straight men often didn't seem like they particularly did, except in specifically utilitarian ways. And they were able to have these conversations. And living in a black neighborhood, I felt like I learned from my neighbors a lot just about what you can do with words, about playful banter, the music of spoken language, of how just a greeting can become a gift, of how to talk to passers-by on the street. And gay men proved that every conversation could be an occasion for wit, for warmth, for insight, for critique, for irony. And there is also so much humor. We see humor often as something trivial, and there's a kind of vicious humor, specifically by a lot of straight male stand-up comics, that's a kind of punching down. But there was a gay humor that was punching holes in people's assumptions and pointing out what was ridiculous in everyday life and heteronormative Stuff And a big part of my cinema education was watching movies in the Castro Movie Theater, one of the last great movie palaces in the U.S., and sitting there in the dark listening to snickers and murmurs and sighs and groans pointed out to me what was ridiculous or campy or queer 
about movies, like the movie Giant, one of my favorite movies of all time, with, with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson, James Dean, Sal Mineo, is full of secret homoerotic campiness. And gay men taught me that, because I've seen that movie there over and over. You know, The Magnificent Seven begins with, oh, God, Yule Brunner sitting on some other hunk's bed, and it's like, it is so gay. But these men... They were so kind, they were so supportive, they could be funny even about heartbreak and devastation, which is part of how you survive those things, and they were just really good friends and joys to be around, and you know, I my black neighborhood, the Western Edition, was really about one neighborhood over from the Castro, so I had specific friends, but I was also around just the way people lived in public, in the days before AIDS and during AIDS, AIDS and after protease inhibitors. And it was just a huge part of my life. And gay men and queer people and lesbians and trans friends and stuff still are. And, you know, it's a blessing. Rebecca Solnit, her new book is Recollections of My Non-Existence. Rebecca, thank you for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 